Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Lit Fest Salons aim to provide provocative, relevant discussions in a dynamic and informal way. There's food and drink and good old-fashioned audience participation. On June 12, 2012, the topic of the salon was, You Should Read This, Poets on Poetry. The featured poets were David Rothman, Seth Brady Tucker, and Nikki Beer. Good evening, everybody. How y'all doing? Hold on, okay? This is day, what is it, day 10? 36 of LitFest, yes. What's that? 11? Friday says 12? Day 12 of 18? Wait, how many? 15, 16 days in LitFest. 12 days of Christmas. Yeah, well, we're almost done. It's very exciting. Thanks for coming tonight. Um, We should get started with You Should Read This, Poets on Poetry. These guys are poets. Yeah. Yeah, they're super... They're super fancy and attractive. So um, I'm just going to read the bios, and then I'm going to turn it over to them. I know you can't wait. And uh, we'll just go from there. Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah. All right, first. Okay, so first I'm going to introduce Nikki Beer. Yeah. Nikki Beer is the author of The Diminishing, Diminishing House, which won the 2010 Colorado Book Award for Poetry. Her awards include a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, not too shabby, a Ruth Lilly Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation, a scholarship and a fellowship from the Bread Loaf Writers Conference, and a Discovery the Nation Award. She's an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Denver, and her second book of poems, The Octopus Game, will be published by Carnegie Mellon in 2014. Give it up for Nikki Beer. Does the octopus game, does that require eight players? Oh, I always go for the easy joke. You have to meet Alexander. He, he's doing a documentary on Paul the Psychic Octopus, who um, guessed the World Cup. Eight, he was eight for eight, right? Eight games. Eight for eight. How ironic. Next up is Seth, Seth Brady Tucker, right here. Yeah. His book, Mormon Boy, which is for sale, I think is Diminishing House over there. Yes, thank you. Um, uh, Seth Tucker's book, Mormon Boy, won the 2011 Elixir Press Editor's Poetry Prize and was published in early 2012. That was like a couple of months ago, right? Yeah, excellent. He has recently attended the Breadloaf Writers Conference. Yeah? No, good job. Oh, he, 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 tu- he touched me. <laughs> Very exciting. Uh, the Breadloaf Writers Conference as a scholar in 2011. Did you guys, did you guys see each other there? Yes. Excellent. Yeah, good. Wonderful. Small world. Um, it has been nominated for a number of awards, including the Pushcart Prize. His poetry and fiction is forthcoming or has appeared... In Connecticut Review, Antioch Review, Chautauqua, River Sticks, Indiana Review, Rosebud, North American Review, Witness, Rhino, Poetry Northwest, Crab Orchard Review, among many other journals and anthologies. Seth has degrees in creative writing and literature from San Francisco State University. You get around. Northern Arizona University and Florida State University. He just got his PhD. Yeah. Do you have the fancy velvety kind of robes? No, I didn't even go. Oh. 
I was wondering where you get those robes. Do, do they send them to you when you get your PhD? I can order them. Order them? You got to pay for it? 600 Nobody touch the curtains, okay? Don't make yourself a PhD robe. Um, Seth is originally from Wyoming. He served as an Army 82nd Airborne Paratrooper in the Persian Gulf. He's such a slacker and was a collegiate basketball player. First time I met him, he had split his lip playing basketball. How many? 20 some stitches? Something. It was ugly. It was really terrible. He drooled all over me. It was terrible. Anyway, Seth teaches ethics, literature, and writing at the Colorado School of Mines as well as poetry workshops at the Lighthouse Writers Workshop in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. Give it up for Seth Brady Tucker. And last, but certainly not least, David J. Rothman. Yeah. I've known David for a really long time. When I first met David, I had hair. That's how long ago it was. David J. Rothman holds degrees from Harvard, the Univers- you get around too. The University of Utah and New York University. He has taught at the University of Utah, New York University. This is repetitive. New York University and Western State College of Colorado, along with many secondary schools. He currently serves as director of the poetry concentration with an emphasis on verse craft mm-hmm. and the MFA in creative writing at Western State College of Colorado. And he also teaches writing at Lighthouse and the University of Colorado at Boulder. Rothman was the founding editor and publisher of Conundrum Press, which was recently acquired by Denver's, how do you say it, Samizdat Group. He has also been the president and executive director of the Robinson Jeffers Association, and he was headmaster of the Crested Butte Academy, a private secondary school from 1998 to 2004. Rothman's poems have appeared in Poetry, The Atlantic, Hudson Review, Kenyon Review, Appalachia, 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 Appalachia. The Gettysburg Review, the Three Penny Review, and scores of other journals. His second book of poems, The Elephant's Chiropractor, was runner-up for the 1999 Colorado Book Award. I think he should have won. I think they threw. I think they threw it. It was suspicious. Jimmy Carter was on it. Did he ever come up with a report? And anyways, with Stanley Rothman and uh, with Stanley Rothman and Stephen Powers, he co-authored a book on film, Hollywood's America. When did you do this? Ninety-eight. Ninety-eight. You watch movies. Amazing. And his essays on subjects from modern poetry to restoration satire. I don't even know what that is. It sounds good, though. <laughs> Film theory, ski mountaineering, and other subjects appear widely. His fourth collection of poetry, Go Big, comes out from Redhead Press in 2015. Last time I heard it was 2012. Time moves slow. Do you want me to call my cousins? I got um, Alfie, Dougie, and little Tony. They can... We'll go over there. I'm half Italian, in case you're wondering. Please give it up for David Rothman. So they're each going to talk about the poets that they, you should be reading. Damn you. And don't be slackers about it. You have to write this down and you have to read these poems. Poets. There will be a quiz. And then afterwards, um, we're going to vote on who, who did best. All right. So... Yeah? Why do you need it? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Where is it? <laughs> All right, do you want to go first? I guess he's going first. Oh, okay. So I, I was talking with Mike and Andrea about this a few years ago, and we decided we should do this. We're, it's sort of, I don't know, we cooked it up because um, we were talking about the fact that, you know, the poetry world obviously is an odd market, and uh, 
there are a lot of books published. There's probably as much poetry published now as there are fish in the sea. And um, uh, there, here we'll do this. Um, and uh, the reason we did that, I'm not sure I need that even. Can you hear me? No, you need to do it because of the podcast. Okay. Um, and the reason we decided to, to do this was because was because you go first yeah you know people don't don't uh, there's a mouse you know it, uh, there's not a lot of critical consensus out there and there are a lot of disagreements about uh, what poetry matters, uh, what to read. It, I, I can't tell you how many times in my classes students come up and say, well, you know, I really love poetry, but it's unclear to me what I should read or why. And uh, so it's, it seemed like this was a, a logical outcome of that. And the point isn't to have a consensus or anything, but simply to present to you the kinds of things that some of the poets in our community think uh, are worth reading. That doesn't mean they're the only things worth reading, um, and it doesn't mean people have to agree or convince each other. They're just uh, things that we're excited about. That's the way I approached it. So uh, last year I, I talked about, or I, I phoned in my essay on W.S. Merwin, who I think, still think is one of the two or three poets in the world who deserves the Nobel Prize who hasn't won it, the other one being Ernesto Cardinal. And what I wanted to talk about this time for 15 or 20 minutes, 15 minutes, is... Um, 15 minutes, 15, 14, I got 13, <laughs> 10, 9, 8, is uh, a poet named B.H. Fairchild, Pete Fairchild. He's an absolutely amazing person. He's, I guess he's about 70 now, and he really became very well known when he was about 60. He uh, was raised in North Texas and then in the town that he refers to as the most oxymoronically named town in America, Liberal, Kansas. And uh, his father ran a machine lathing shop, and he has this great essay on how, for him, um, poetics, he has a whole poetics of the lathe. And in fact, the book that made him famous was called The Art of the Lathe. And, um, hold on, I have it here. And that, the, the art, the art of the lathe won just about every prize except the Pulitzer. I mean, it, it, and it really went through a lot of editions. Came out in... I don't know, 98 from Alice James Books, I think. Um, we're in the wrong glasses. Uh, I can't even read that. 98. And, um, and it took a while to catch fire, but when it did, I mean, the, it, it has reviews here like a New York Times bestseller, and I won't, I'll spare you reading them. Uh, but, you know, it won the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award, the Capricorn Poetry Award, the Beatrice Holly Award, and then... Uh, the book Usher, then his subsequent books all did incredibly well. Um, this one, Early Occult Memory Systems of the Lower Midwest, won the National Book Critics Circle Award. His subsequent book, Usher, won the National Book Critics Circle Award again. Um, his earlier books are also quite fine. They just weren't as well known. And he also turned himself into a spectacularly good scholar. His dissertation was published, Such Holy Song, Music as Idea, Form, and Image in the Poetry of William Blake. And it's just an 
excellent study, very dense. And of course, you know, most, most Blake scholars are schizophrenic, and he, uh, he managed to avoid that somehow, but he, uh, he really knows his stuff. And I think there's quite an influence, a subterranean influence of Blake upon his writing, particu- particularly in his sense of music and of metrics. He generally writes in a kind of a loose hexameter line. Um, so there are a couple of things about his poetry that are extraordinary. First, he's a fantastic storyteller. And his best poems, not all of his best poems, but many of his best poems, all focus around his, his childhood, adolescence, and very early manhood, maybe up, into, maybe up into his early 20s, late teens especially, in growing up in Kansas and in uh, the Texas Panhandle, um, the High Plains, High Plains Drifter, uh, working on the oil rigs and in machine shops and hanging around being bored on a Saturday night, which is what the poem is about that I'm going to read to you. And his ability to evoke that world is so powerful and so intense that you feel as if you grew up there too when you read about it. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, so part of it is the, 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 the evocation of that place, which is really extraordinary, and that time in America and then um, I'd say one of the other things is he does is he, he's extraordinarily good at uh, conveying the texture of work, working class life in that middle American time and place. And he really knows his stuff. When he talks about the gear and tackle and trim of a profession of being an oil wildcat, wildcatter or uh, working on a, again, working on a machine lathe or, or fixing a car, he really knows machines uh, and, and he conveys a sense of the grit of American life in a way that I would compare to somebody like um, Philip Levine, although, I, I, frankly, I like Fairchild's stories more. He's never written a book-length narrative. He's written sequential narratives, and he writes about many other subjects as well, and he's also, of course, quite a, quite a knowledgeable guy as a scholar. He's turned himself into an excellent scholar and essayist. But it's those poems, uh, poems with titles like Beauty and Rave On, uh, and there's a poem about Joe DiMaggio, I can't remember the name of it, called it's about baseball. He loves baseball. He knows a great deal about it that are just extraordinary. And I, I, I just want to spend some time conveying that to you because these are narrative poems. They don't excerpt very well. So I'm going to read one that is my favorite that I think is a great American poem of the last 25 years. And it's called Rave On from the Buddy Holly tune. And I'll just tell you a little bit about it that he t- generally tells before he... Um, He tells the poem, and I don't think I'm really giving away a lot to tell this, and it'll make it a little bit more clear. Uh, They were so bored in liberal Kansas on Saturday nights sometimes in this little town that the the guys discovered, you know, that you could buy a cheap junker car uh, in a in a junkyard and fix it up for 50 or 60 bucks and then they would without seatbelts head out towards the end of town get it going as fast as they could throw the wheel 90 degrees and roll it for fun and see what would happen go in a boy and come out a man. Rave on. Get ready. There's an epigraph, Wild to be Wreckage Forever, from James Dickey's poem, Cherry Log Road. A caliche, I expect most people here know what that is. You know, it's a kind of stone that characterizes um, the high plains. Um, Rave on is a Buddy Holly tune. I'm not going to tell you. There's a bunch of biblical references in here. I'll let them speak for themselves. Rave on. Rumbling over caliche with a busted muffler. Radio blasting Buddy Holly over Baptist wheat fields. Travis screaming out, prepare ye the way of the Lord. 
at jackrabbits skittering beneath our headlights, the Messiah coming to Kansas in a flathead Ford with bad plates, the whole high plains holding its breath. Night is fast upon us. Lo, in these days, the days of our youth, and we were hell to pay, or thought we were. Boredom grows thick as maize in Kansas, heavy as drill pipe, littering the racks of oil rigs, where in summer boys roust about or work on combine crews north as far as Canada. The ones left back in town begin to die, dragging Main Street shit-faced on 3-2 beer and banging on the whorehouse door in Garden City, where the ancient madam laughed and turned us down since we were only boys and she knew our fathers. We sat out front spitting red man and scanned a landscape flat as Dresden. Me, Mike Luckenbill, Billy Hines, and Travis Doyle. Travis Doyle, who sang, I'm gonna live fast, love hard, and die young. We had eaten all the life there was in Seward County, but hungry still, hauled ass to, all, to old Arcalon, the ghost town on the Cimarron that lay in half shadow and a scattering of starlight, and its stillness was a kind of death, the last breath of whatever in our lives was ending. We had drunk there and tossed our bottles at the walls and pissed great arcs into the Kansas earth where the dust groweth hard and the clods cleave fast together. Yea, where night yawns above the river in its long, dark dream, above haggard branches of mesquite, chicken hawks scudding into the tree line and moon glitter on caliche like the silver plates of Coronado's treasure buried all these years. And that's a myth about central Kansas. I should have said. But the absence of treasure, absence of whatever would return the world to the strangeness that as children we embraced and recognized as life. Rave on. Cars are cheap at Roman salvage, strewn along the fence out back, where cattle graze and chew rotting fabric from the seats. Twenty bucks for spare parts and a night in the garage could make them run as far as death and stupidity required. On Johnson Road, where two miles of low shoulders and no fence line would take you up to 60, say, and when you flipped the wheel clockwise, you were there, rolling in the belly of the whale, belly of hell, and your soul fainteth within you. For we had seen it done by Big Ed Ravenscroft, who said, you would go in a boy and come out a man. So we headed, and so we headed back through town where the marquee of the plaza flashed, creature from the black lagoon in storefront windows and the snack shack where we had spent our lives was shutting down and we sang rave on it's a crazy feeling out into the night that loomed now like a darkened church and sang loud and louder still for we were sore afraid coming up out of the long tunnel of cottonwoods that opens onto Johnson Road, Travis with his foot stuck deep into the sole of that old Ford. Come on, Bubba, come on. Beating the dash with his fist, hair flaming back in the wind, and eyes lit up by some fire in his head that I had never seen. And Mike, Iron Mike, sitting tall in back with Billy, who would pick a fight with anything that moved, but now hunched over, mumbling something like a prayer as the Ford lurched on, spitting and coughing, but then smoothing out suddenly fast, and the fence line quitting so it was open field. Then, 
Then, I think, we were butt deep in regret and a rush of remembering whatever we would leave behind. Samantha Dobbins, smelling like fresh laundry, light from the movie spilling down her long blonde hair, trout leaping all silver and pink from Black Bear Creek, the hand of my mother, I confess, passing gentle across my face at night when I was a child. Oh, yes, it was all good now and too late, too late. Trees blurring past and Travis wild, popping the wheel. Oh, too late, too late. And the waters pass over us, the air thick as mud, slams against our chests. Though turning now, the car in its slow turning seems almost graceful, the frame in agony like some huge animal groaning. And when the wheels leave the ground, the engine cuts loose with a wail thin and ragged as a bandsaw cutting tin. And we are drowning, breathless heads jammed against our knees, and it's a thick, swirling, purple nightmare we cannot wake up from, for the world is turning too. And I hear Billy screaming, and then the whomp! Sick crunch of glass and metal whomp again back window popping loose and glass exploding someone crying out tink tink of iron on iron overhead and then at last it's over and the quiet comes oh so quiet somewhere the creak and grind of a pumping unit crickets the tall grass sifting the wind in a mass of whispers that I know I'll be hearing when I die. And so we crawled trembling from doors and windows, born out of rage and boredom into weed-choked fields, barren as Golgotha. Blood raked the side of Travis's face, grinning, rapt, ecstatic. Mike's arm was hanging down like a broken curtain rod, Billy kneeled, stunned, listening as we all did to the rustling silence and the spinning wheels in their sad, manic song as the Ford's high beams hurled their crossed poles of light forever out into the deep and future darkness. Rave on. I survived. We all did. And then came the long surrender. The long, slow drifting down like young hawks riding on the purest, thinnest air, the very palm of God holding them aloft so close to something hidden there, and then the letting go, the fluttering descent, claws spread wide against the world, and we become at last our fathers, and do not know ourselves, and therefore no longer know each other. Mike Luckenbill ran a Texaco in town for years. Billy Hines survived a cruel divorce, remarried, then took to drink. But finally, last week, I found this house in Arizona where the brothers take new names and keep a vow of silence and make a quiet place for any weary or lost passenger of earth whose unquiet life has brought him there. And so, after vespers, I sat across the table from men who had not surrendered to the world. And one of them looked at me and looked into me And I am telling you that there was a fire in his head and his eyes were coming fast down a caliche road. And I knew this man and his name was Travis Doyle. Good luck forgetting that. B.H. Fairchild, read him.
Hi, everyone. <laughs> well, thank you, David, so much for that thrilling and, and, and energizing talk. I, I think we're all kind of restraining ourselves from running out to, well, probably to the tattered cover, um, <laughs> to buy, to buy a B.H. Fairchild. Um, I, think, I think compared to, to uh, David's uh, laser-like focus on Fairchild, my talk is going to seem more like buckshot. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but, but I'm okay with that um, because uh, one of the things that I really delight in um, in getting to uh, be a poet and also to teach poetry is that I get to hook people up with different writers. Uh, I get to basically get paid to be a literary yenta, so to speak, um, and that's you know a source of a source of, a source of endless pleasure for me. And I thought actually um, one of the things one of the things that I wanted to to, to, to recommend is something that I really think should be on uh, every uh, on every poet's uh, reference shelf. Um, I'm going to be talking about a lot of different books, so you know you might want to write some of these down. Um, which is a, a a collection called uh, "Quote Poet Unquote: Contemporary Quotations on Poets and Poetry," and it's edited by the Irish poet Dennis O'Driscoll. And it's basically a, just a wonderful compendium, just like what it sounds, of quotes of poets on poetry. And it reads as kind of uh, like the the best commonplace book in the world on poetry. And it's organized into these wonderful, they're not exactly chapters, they're too short to be chapters. They're more like sections. Uh, and so you have sections that would be somewhat expected uh, on subject matter and audience. But then there's also a section called uh, Making Nothing Happen and another section called Making Something Happen. And one of the things that I really delight in these quotations is that there's so many in this collection that contradict one another. So it's, it's, you really come away from this book um, not feeling that there's one party line that's being argued about poetry in this collection, but that you come away from you know, this, looking at this collection and thinking what a wonderful multiplicity we have living in the world of poetry. And actually, I picked a couple of, of quotations to read to you all. Um, one of the f things that we're talking about in making reading recommendations, uh, I saw this quote by Rosanna Warren, and she says, most writing has only a tiny quotient of originality. We are mostly writing out of what we have read. That's not a bad thing. That's an acknowledgment of filiation. And then... Uh, Marvin Bell uh, approaches the same idea from a slightly different angle, and he says, originality is a new amalgam of influences. Um, and then you have quotes that are just incredibly charming, like uh, Jennifer Groats saying that poetry is philosophy's sister, the one that wears makeup. Um, <laughs> you, uh, <laughs> you have a... The, uh, you have the poet, uh, uh, the writer, rather, uh, Penny Dyer, uh, saying that a poem is language distilled into premium whiskey. No mix, no ice, no little paper umbrella. Um, and then um, uh, there's actually one of my favorite quotes is actually by B.H. Fairchild. Um, and he says, and this is uh, from the Writer's Chronicle, he says, sometimes the more promising the subject seems, the more difficult the poem is. As soon as you say, ah, this will make a great poem, you're probably intimidating the imagination. Isn't that a great phrase? Intimidating the imagination with exaggerated expectations or too much foreknowledge of the direction the poem will take. And just that idea of 
overthinking the poem before you write it. I just respond to that so much, and I think, I think we've all been there. And then just the last quote I wanted to read from this collection um, by Lee Young Lee. Um, he says, um, it's not just language that we use to write poems. We use silence, too. In fact, we use language to inflect silence so we can hear it better. Isn't that great? So again, <laughs> that's a quote, poet, unquote. Contemporary quotations on poets and poetry. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll is the editor, and that's out uh, on, on Copper Canyon. Um, when they, and they put out so many wonderful books, and that came out in 2008. Um, so that was, the, that was the one that I think should be on everyone's reference shelf that I wanted to start off with. Um, another thing, another couple of books that I wanted to recommend, I'm going to say something probably a little controversial right now, but you guys like that, right? Controversial? Okay, provocative? All right, okay. So I'm not a big fan of this phrase that kind of gets bandied about in the writer's circles, the idea of finding your voice. I know, all right, okay. Oh, right. Um, from my perspective as a writer, the most fun that you can have is finding voices that are not your own at all. Um, and this is why I have such a deep love for persona poetry. Um, and so one of the, another one of the books that I wanted to recommend was Sandra Beasley's uh, I Was the Jukebox. There are some terrific persona poems in there, and specifically persona poems uh, from voices that are not human. Um, so you have poems like The Sand Speaks, um, which is actually the first poem in the collection. I think it's such a terrific way to start off a, po a poetry collection, this idea of this thing, which is actually a collection of many tiny individual things speaking as one, that that's the first poem in a collection. It's so smart. Um, the World War Speaks, The Minotaur Speaks, The Piano Speaks, The Eggplant Speaks, The Platypus Speaks. Um, and, and, you know, she, she has such a playful and, and inventive and imaginative yet incredibly serious approach to persona. Um, and I, I think she's just such a master of, of her craft. And also, um, for you Sestina fans, she also has some terrific Sestinas in this book as well. Um, and again, that's I Was the Jukebox by Sandra Beasley. And so on a related note, in terms of my love of, of persona, um, there's a book that I'm reading right now, which I've been waiting to come out for so long, and I think it was finally published in February, and I'm reading it right now, and it's a, a, an anthology called uh, A Face to Meet the Faces, an anthology of contemporary persona poetry, and that's edited by Stacey Lynn Brown and Oliver De La Paz, and that's out on University of Akron Press. I'm reading it right now, and it's, it's, it's just fantastic, and it's organized. You can sometimes tell how good an anthology is by how it's been organized, the kind of intelligence that's being imposed upon it, and the kind of enthusiasm that's directing it. And so we have uh, this anthology of persona poems that's organized with uh, sections like That Was Then, Voices from Our Historical Pasts, so all historical personae. Um, we have As It Was Written, Saints, Sinners, and Holy Figures from Sacred Texts. And then you have Happily Ever After, Fair fairy tales, creatures, and other imaginings. Uh, and so it's such, and it's, it's such a huge, staggering compendium of, I think, some of the, the best writers, um, you know, best poets writing today. Uh, Jake Adam York. Um, <laughs> he's got a piece in there as well. Um, and I think it's such a wonderful, uh, it's such a wonderful example of 
how flexible and how diverse persona can be and what a marvelous tool it is in the hands of such different poets of different aesthetics and different concerns and different formal interests. So uh, again, that, that anthology is a face to meet the faces and I strongly recommend you all buy multiple copies to have in one in each room of the house. Um, uh, another thing that I like to do, uh, uh, or rather that's that, um, I try to do as a poet is to read outside of my experience and I try to read outside of my nationality um, whenever I can. And um, there's another book that I want to recommend by a Danish poet uh, called Karsten René Nielsen. And his book is called House Inspections and it just came out on BOA in November. And he's translated by the poet uh, David Keplinger, who is actually Colorado-based for, for some time. And now, you know, now he's out in D.C. Um, and, uh, you know, if you know uh, David's work, you know that he's you know a, a, a great poet of the prose poem form, and Karsten Rene Nielsen is also uh, a master of the prose poem form as well. And um, this is actually his first translated full-length collection that's appearing in English. Um, David actually translated. Uh, something that was a kind of a selected of Nielsen's work that came out a few years ago called The World Cut Out with Crooked Scissors, which is also fantastic. And the wonderful thing about Nielsen's work, in House Inspections especially, is that in writing the prose poem form, he... Um, he creates a kind of dreamlike, surreal atmosphere. And I don't mean the surrealism of uh, just sort of random non sequiturs, but the surrealism that you find in, I'd say, the paintings of Magritte. You know, Ceci n'est pas une pipe, uh, the guy who's got the bowler hat but the green apple for the face, that painter. Um, that kind of wonderful surrealism that comes from being in an environment that's hyper-normal, and yet certain details start to present themselves where you suddenly realize that your environment is completely strange. Uh, and that is really one of the characteristics of Nielsen's work. So again, that's House Inspections by Karsten Renee Nielsen, just a terrific uh, Danish poet. Um, another thing that I admire as a poet, how am I doing on time? Am I okay? Okay, great. You can do like one of these, I think they do that on TV. And some, of <laughs> some sort of hand signal, whatever one you like is, is fine. Um, uh, another thing that I value as both a poet and a reader is inventiveness, imaginativeness, serious play. Uh, and so I wanted to recommend uh, the poet Catherine Pierce's second book, The Girls of Peculiar. Um, and she has some wonderful uh, epistolary poems in there. Uh, Dear Adam Baum, Dear Self, I Might Have Been, Postcards from Her Future Self, uh, Postcards from Her Alternate Lives. And she, you know, she takes this ep epistolary form and manages to stretch in so many extraordinary directions. Um, and then you have other poems where you, you can just tell she just sort of seizes on these wonderful premises and explores them in the poems. And just from the titles alone, you can tell the kind of play that she's interested in. Uh, the Universe is a Madam, uh, a short biography of the American people by city. Uh, she gets drunk and talks too much at her 20th reunion. <laughs> and um, this wonderful poem towards the end of the book called How It Ends, Three Cities. And it's this poetic imagining of the apocalypse in three different uh, cities. And so she's this poet of big imagination that takes these wonderful, almost comic ideas. And yet by the end of the poem, she, she, she has you kind of gasping, uh, for breath with how far she's taken the idea. So again, that's Catherine Pierce and The Girls of Peculiar, and that's her second book. Um, and you should also check out her, her first book, um, 
famous last words, um, which has a lot of wonderful poems of various famous people in the last moments of their lives, like uh, Marie Antoinette, uh, Billy the Kid, um, Pancho Villa. Uh, and uh, sort of on a related note, in terms of serious play, I wanted to recommend another anthology, um, which is... Uh, called The Imaginary Poets, um, and it's edited by Alan Michael Parker, and it came out on Tupelo in 2005. And I think the best way to, to describe this anthology is just to read this challenge uh, with which Parker presented uh, the poets who were participating in this anthology. Translate a poem into English, offer a biography of the poet, then write a short essay in which the poem, the poet, and the corpus are considered, and make all of it up without once indicating that you have done so. So this is an anthology of works by poets and scholarship about poets that do not exist. Um, so you have uh, Aliki Barnstone writing as Ava Victoria Pereira, a, a Jewish Greek poet whose family survived the German invasion of Greece uh, uh, in World War II under false Christian identities. You have Kevin Prufer writing as the 19th century anti-imperialist Chinese poet Wen Bo. And you have uh, Barbara Hanby writing as the 19th century German nun Gertrude of Brandenburg. Uh, and so this is, this is just such a wonderful anthology uh, that sort of explores one of the things that I like to think about as a writer is see how far you can take the lie. You know, it's one thing to make up something in a line, in a phrase, in a poem, but to actually make up a three-dimensional poet and give that entire poet a biography and a body of scholarship behind his or her work, you know, that is really having a total commitment to the fiction, which I think we should all have as writers. Um, I also want to recommend a few novels that I think are terrific for poets to read. Uh, there's uh, Kevin Brockmeyer's The Illumination. Uh, and the premise of this novel is that for reasons unexplained, one day the entire world wakes up and pain is suddenly made visible. Physical pain is suddenly made visible um, as a phenomenon of light coming out of the body. So essentially, if you get a paper cut, you're going to have a little stream of light radiating out of your body. If your back hurts, you're going to have a kind of glow on your lower back. And the novel explores this phenomenon through the experience of different characters. And Brockmeyer is such a beautiful, lyric uh, writer who I think, you know, I think it's just a matter of time before he finally publishes his first book of poems. Um, if you're familiar with his book, A Brief History of the Dead, which is another you know, lyrical approach to the uh, apocalypse. Um, he's really he's really a kind of a poet's fiction writer, and uh, and, I, and I really love his work as well. Um, also, there's a poet uh, Ben Lerner who's also published his first novel called Leaving the Atocha Station, and. Basically, the premise of this uh, novel is uh, a young writer who's on a, a young poet who's on a Fulbright scholarship in Spain. And one of the things I love about this novel, um, forgive me if I'm revealing too much, is that he really captures the self-loathing of a writer <laughs> so <Self> well. <laughs> The, the 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 kind of intense self consciousness and self scrutiny and and simultaneous obsession and disdain that writers can have with the literary world and literary goings on, um, and there, there, there's just a point where you're where you're reading this book and you go, yep, done that, felt that, 
thought that, yep. And it's not your best self that's being reflected in this book. So it, it's really, it's kind of a, it's, it, it's, it's a book that's funny partially because it exposes the times when we can be very small and very petty as writers, when we're not always our best selves. <laughs> but I think there's something, re- but there, there's something kind of affirming that, you know, you look at that and you realize you see yourself in it. You see a lot of people that you know in it. So again, that's Ben Lerner's Leaving the Atocha Station. Um, and I, I think just, just, to, just to wrap up, um, one of the things that I, I try to do as a writer and I try to encourage other writers to do is to cultivate your obsessions and to try to read um, read outside of your genre uh, and read outside of the subjects that are familiar to you. So I wanted to recommend um, a book by Melissa Milgram. It's a nonfiction book called Still Life Adventures in Taxidermy, which is uh, a, a nonfiction study of the world of taxidermy, the history of modern taxidermy. Um, there's a chapter where she goes and uh, observes the World Taxidermy Championships and another chapter where she learns to taxidermy a squirrel herself. Um, and it, I, I really, I love this book because, you know, it, it writes about this world of taxidermy, which, you know, on the surface, you know, I'm not necessarily, you know, I, I think I, I experience a certain amount of recoil when I think of people spending a lot of time taking the bodies of animals and trying to animate them. But essentially, I mean, that's what we're doing as writers. We're taking these, you know, we're sort of taking these separate parts, these words, which are somewhat inert when they're scattered on their own, and we're trying to essentially fashion them into something that's alive, or at least has the illusion of life. Uh, and so I, I, it's, a very, it's a very charming book, Still Life, Adventures in Taxidermy. And then um, Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice to All Creation, The Definitive Guide to the Evolutionary Biology of Sex. Um, and that's by uh, the science writer Olivia Judd. And, and, you know, I think as writers, you know, we write a lot about sex, we read a lot about sex, we think a lot about sex, but what do we really know about sex outside of our own species? Uh, and this really teaches us, you know, uh, how fascinating the sex life of uh, the fruit fly, the chimpanzee, the cuttlefish can be. Um, so really, you know, it's, it's really just about trying to cast your net as wide as possible when it comes to your, your interests and your obsessions. Um, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll close that for now so I can, I can turn things over to Seth. But, um, and again, if you want to, you know, if you didn't catch all of those, those names or those titles and you want to talk to me afterwards about them, please, please feel free. And, and thank you so much for listening. It's been a pleasure to, to, to share my enthusiasms with you. <laughs> Can I do that? Can I get this? Oh, there we go. I just had a, a little flash of Marv Albert um, trying the play-by-play of cuttlefish sex. Um, <laughs> I don't know how that would go. I was going to try it, but I, I, I don't think I'm... I'm <laughs> You know, cuttlefish sex, yes! Anybody know Marv Albert? Uh, what I'm going to talk about today uh, will be a little bit, if, if Nikki's was like a uh, buckshot, my, mine might be a little bit more like a, a Nerf cannon. Anybody ever have a Nerf, Nerf cannon? Um, so I'm going to talk about a couple poets that I hold dear right now. Maybe break into a little bit about a couple others. Uh, you know, chances are I just misread this and I thought it was uh, you should be reading these <laughs> instead of you should be reading this. So it might be a couple of uh, uh, hopefully some, some writers that you haven't heard of or don't know much about. Um, the first thing I want to talk about, though, is a, 
is a uh, collection that I hold dear. Mostly, if any of you are teachers, I think it's, it's great for student readers, but it's also great for poets who have been you know, working the craft for a while. And it's called Seriously Funny. Uh, this is edited by Barbara Hamby, David Kirby. Um, and one of the reasons that I, that I love it is I've always thought that poetry, as well as fiction, should, you know, if it addresses tragedy, that it should do so in a way that it's buttering the bread of com- comedy in some way, in the same way that comedy butters the bread of tragedy. Uh, you know, most of our, uh, the comedy that we, that we really hold dear oftentimes has that really tragic nature to it. Uh, maybe that's because we're cynical and evil at the core, but um, it's one of the things that I really love about poetry and about a couple of the poets that I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, But I would highly recommend it because I was thinking about it. I had a list of, and if if you want to email me, I can send you the list. But I was thinking about poets from World War II on that maybe don't get enough credit, Uh, especially those that are writing now and in the 90s, poets that might have been overlooked in some way. Um, And a lot of them end up in this collection. Uh, And and I'm not going to go through all the names, but some of them have already been mentioned. Uh, Lee Young Lee, who I love, um, uh, Bob Hickok, um, some of those poets. So uh, who I'm going to talk about today, though, is uh, Jane Springer and Brian Turner. Uh, Brian Turner is not funny. So we'll, we'll just put that out there. Jane Springer is a little bit more funny. Um, and rather than listen to me talk, I think I was going to talk a little bit about Jane Springer. Uh, she's a Southern poet, uh, of course, moving around, living in New England, because that's what you do as a teacher when you can't find jobs in the South. Um, but what she does is something, I think, special, and, and that is that she has this sweet Southern nature to her writing, but there's also this really kind of crass sort of New England sort of uh, feel to it at the same time. Uh, she can be funny and sweet, but kind of at the same time sawing your, sawing your leg off as she does it. So let me read a, let me read a couple of... Because everybody likes that. <laughs> so let me read from, and, and I meant to make a joke earlier about this because this is her new collection. It's called Murder Ballad. And I was going to tell uh, Jake York that I ordered Murder Ballads and this is what I got. <laughs> because his collection, which is fantastic, is also <laughs> called Murder Ballads. And it might also be a testament to, to Jane's, uh, I know her personally, she has, a, she has a problem with technology. So she, might, she just might not have ever looked it up. There's a good chance. I wrote her and asked her if she did look it up. Yeah, yeah did you? Yeah. She said later. Oh, really? <laughs> awesome. So I'm glad I brought this one up. Uh, this is called The Coon's Age. It can't be told by height pounds, tooth count, or tail rings, but how long ago some settler named Tallahassee for her, oiled, her, for her old fields, or how long the bar we walked to stood open, doored so mosquitoes woozed in, but more time than it took, the blue lights affixed on pool tables to zap them. If you can imagine how many oyster shucks it took to pave under the trucks of the bay-filled 
Bayside fish markets or how many gallons of water pour forth from the caves under Wakulla Springs, larger than the divorce's chain of rings linked round the stag's horns in Kent's bar and more than limbs in the streets after hurricanes, or how deep the water to wade through on Gaines Street, how long it will take the hired goats in the mall parking lot to digest the strand of kudzu twined round every last live oak. And said with a pang of missing, especially apt after two New York winters spent longing for drawls, boiled peanuts, sweet cashiers, gold teeth and passion plays acted out in front of churches. I keep your banjo pick tucked into my bra strap. And last week, the, cr- the creek rose with all the ice melt, so I pulled last fall's frozen coon's carcass from under the porch, lest the thaw have him stinking worse than skunks in heat. But he just grinned like a mule eating briars, rared, then bit me. And, and that's one of the things that uh, Jane does that I, that I admire, is, is take sort of this, uh, this southern world... And, and I think what, what most great poets do is, bring, is take you to a specific time and place, even though that's something that we see more in fiction. I think that poets, whether it's a philosophy, they take you inside the poet's head, um, or you get to enjoy an afternoon being bit by a, by a, a briar-chewing mule. Um, anyway, I would highly recommend her poetry. And as, as I said before, if you're interested in the list that I, that I drummed up, I, I'm more than happy to do that. Um, and as I said, Brian Turner, this is sort of the guy that I'm, uh, because we're both uh, uh, soldiers, or we were both soldiers, uh, Brian Turner served in the 1st Striker Brigade in Iraq, um, which isn't nearly as tough, rough, and tumble as the 82nd. There's just no way that that could ever be. <laughs> Because that's impossible. Like, any, any, any of the 80, 101st, 82nd, they all think they're the baddest people on the planet. So, um, but he saw a lot of combat. And what's interesting about this guy is that he's one of the most soft-spoken people that you'll ever meet. But when he reads, he's got this big voice and big presence. So I probably am not going to be able to do a very good job of reading it, considering um, I didn't have a sweet, soft, southern drawl for, the, for Jane Springer. So... Bear with me with this, but uh, if you don't mind, are, you, are we okay with more of a reading of, of good poetry right now? All right. Yeah, more, more quality than quantity from me. I got, I got nothing, so. All right, this is from Here Bullet again, Brian Turner. He has another collection called Phantom Noise. Here Bullet treats, uh, basically addresses his time in Iraq. As a matter of fact, this is, so this is kind of a side note, kind of an interesting thing about Brian Turner. He's really the only poet I've ever, that I know of, who actually wrote his poetry and created a collection in combat. This isn't reflective. This is him not coming home. This is 2005. He was in the service. So it's one of those rare things. I mean, you can think about the service members, uh, Jarrell, um, 
you know, Dickey, some of these guys that it was always afterwards that they talked about it. And you can think about fiction writers do the same thing. Uh, Tim O'Brien with the things they carried that came way later. Uh, so I think it's interesting that there's, and, and I, and you can see this sort of visceral nature of the combat, but it's, really smart it's really intelligently layered uh with his experience of seeing the combatants on the other side and so a lot of this book is about not only the soldiers he worked with but the soldiers that he or the soldiers on the other side so this is called 2000 pounds and this is asher square mosul can you guys is this my speaking into that it begins simply with a fist white-knuckled and tight, glossy with sweat, with two eyes in a rear-view mirror watching for a convoy. The radio, a soundtrack that adrenaline has pushed into silence, replacing it with a heartbeat, his thumb trembling over the button. And there's pauses through this poem. A flight of gold, that's what Sefwan thinks as he lights a Miami, draws in the smoke, and waits in his taxi at the traffic circle. He thinks of summer 1974, lifting pitchforks of grain high in the air, the slow drift of it all like the fall of Shatha's hair. And although it, ha- it was decades ago, he still loves her, remembers her standing at the cane break where the buffalo cooled shoulder deep in the water, pleased with the orange cups of flowers he, br- he brought her. And her gr- regrets... N- Sorry. And her regrets, how so much can go wrong in life, how easily the years slip by, light as grain, bright as the street's concussion of metal, shrapnel traveling at the speed of sound to open him up in blood and shock. A man whose last thoughts are of love and wreckage with no one there to whisper him gone. Sergeant Ledoux of the National Guard speaks but cannot hear the words coming out. And it's just as well his eardrums ruptured because it lends the world a certain calm. Though the traffic circle is filled with people running in panic, their legs a blur like horses in a carousel, turning and turning the way the tires spin on the Humvee flipped to its side, the gunner's hatch he was thrown from a mystery to him now. A dark hole in metal, the color of sand, and if he could, he would crawl back inside of it, and though his fingertips scratch at the asphalt, he hasn't the strength to move. Shrapnel has torn into his ribcage and he will bleed to death in minutes, but he finds himself surrounded by a strange beauty, the light of the light on the broken, a woman's hand touching his face tenderly the way his wife might. Amazed to find a wedding ring on his crushed hand, the bright gold sinking in flesh going to bone. Rashid passes the bridal shop on a bicycle with Sifa beside him. And just before the air ruckles and breaks, he glimpses the sidewalk reflections in the storefront glass. Men and women walking and talking or not. An instant of clarity just before each of them shatters under the detonation's wave. As if even the idea of them were being destroyed, stripped, stripped of form. The blast tearing into the mannequins who stood as though husband... And wife, a moment before, as though husband and wife, a moment before, who cannot touch one another, who cannot kiss, who now lie together in glass and debris, holding one another in their half-armed embrace, calling this love, if this is all there will ever be. 
The civil affairs officer, Lieutenant Jackson, stares at his missing hands, which make no sense to him, no sense at all, to wave these absurd stumps in the air where just a moment before he'd blown bubbles out the Humvee window, his left hand holding the bottle, his right hand dipping the plastic ring in soap, filling the air behind them with floating spheres like the oxygen trails of deep ocean divers, something for the children, something beautiful, translucent globes with their iridescent skins drifting on vehicle exhaust and the breeze that might lift one day over the Zagros Mountains. That kind of hope, small globes which may have astonished someone on the sidewalk seven minutes before Lieutenant Jackson blacks out from blood loss and shock with no one there to bandage the wounds that would carry him home. This might be a little long. Are we okay? Got three more little sections. Nearby, an old woman cradles her grandson, whispering, rocking him on her knees as though singing him to sleep. Her hands wet with their blood, her black dress soaked in it as her legs give out, and she buckles with him to the ground. If you'd asked for 40 years earlier if she could see herself an old woman begging, begging for the, by the road state, sorry, begging by the roadside for money here with a bomb exploding at the market among all these people, she'd have said to have your heart broken one last time before dying, to kiss a child given sight of a life he could never live. It's impossible. This isn't the way we die. And the man who triggered the button, who may have invoked the prophet's name or not, he is obliterated at the epicenter. He is everywhere. He is of all things. His touch is the air taken in, the blast and the wave, the electricity of shock. He is the sound the heart makes quick in the panic's rush, the surge of blood searching for light and color, that sound the martyr cries, filled with the words his soul is made of. Inshallah. Still hanging in the air over Asher Square, the telephone line snapped into crackling a strange incantation, the dead here, as they wander confused amongst one another, learning each other's names, trying to comfort the living in their grief, to console those who cannot accept such random pain, speaking Habib softly, one to another there in the rubble and debris, Habib, over and over, that it might not be forgotten." Uh, Habib means love, I believe. Um, anyway, those were two that I, that I thought would be uh, interesting for people to kind of get a grip on. Again, I will uh, provide the, uh, the rest of them if you need them, but that's all I have for you. Here, we can, and we can move this around now. As much as what? <laughs> as much as uh, the lathe. Well, the one I read was from uh, that book, uh, Ray Vaughn. Uh, yes. And I think Frida Pushnik is in a cult 
uh, it's, 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 that's the shorthand for it. It's called Early Occult Memory Systems of the Lower Midwest. Very odd title, but it has to do with a childhood memory of his. So I think Rave On, and I think Frida Pushnik is in that. It might be an usher. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I think, I think Rave On is just wonderful, personally. But Do you think there is there a is there a difference between the two books? Um, I mean, I, I just I, I just I not not much. I mean, thematically, they're not liking it. Well, I I sans goût, but I, I I they seem to me to be part of the same project. I mean, a lot of the poems grew out of the same impulse. This was, you know, they're they're poems of memory in that time and in that place. Not all of them, but uh, but many of them. I think uh, The Art of the Lathe will probably be, at this point, remembered as his strongest book, but um, that's his project. And, for you know, I, if you don't like them as well, you don't. I don't know. Uh, uh, well, here we can look for a second. Um, there's, there's, there's Rave On, and then there's... Um, Holy Rollers and Snyder, Texas, nineteen fifty-one. Uh, that's a great, that's a great one. Uh, luck. I I don't know. I have to take maybe maybe take another look if you're curious. Other questions? years. You know, what are some books from the 1960s or 1970s that you like, that, that are important to you, but you feel are not maybe as widely known as they might be? Go ahead. I'll wait. Uh, the first one, decade, uh, the one that jumps to mind for me is uh, James Dickey. Um, I for whatever reason, anthologized or from some of his collections, I always kind of end up going back to him. Um, a lot of it, I think, has to do with just I love what he does with uh, raw images. Uh, he doesn't play around with, uh, you know, all poems are about love, death, or sex, I guess. But um, he, seems to, he seems to play fast and loose with that in a lot of ways in, in my eyes. That's a hard question, though. That, that is a hard question. I guess um, I think sometimes Larry Levis's uh, The Afterlife gets sometimes uh, overshadowed by, say, you know, Elegy, uh, because it, uh, Elegy has this kind of, I mean, rightfully so, kind of tragic narrative behind it. You know, it's a book that was uh, being, that was essentially put together by his, by his, by his, his peers and his loved ones after his death. And I think, I think, I think the afterlife, which is uh, his, uh, his, his, his second book, you know, has a lot of great qualities. It's, it's a very different voice from Elegy. Um, but I think, um, oh, shoot, the, the, the long poem about the birds at the end, what, what, what is that? Linnets, yeah, for some reason I was thinking sparrows, but uh, Linnets, I think it's a, I think it's probably one of the great, uh, sequence poems, you know, of the 20th century, uh, that I think gets really overshadowed by the later work. Um, and so that's, I, I guess that's, pro that's, 
you know, I think I think Levis is adored, but I think sometimes his, early, his earlier work gets short shrift um, because the later work has such kind of a grand sprawling vision that sometimes it overshadows the earlier work. So if I understand your question, you're, you're talking about a question of reception versus reputation. Because there are p- books that we love that are well-known, of course. You know, Howl is an important poem, but it's certainly not ignored. Um, when I, I'm very curious about this question, too. You know, the question of how reputations are made and what reception is like. And uh, when I look at American poetry, whatever that may be, with a shoe in its stomach... From the beginning, it seems to me there are three or four poets whose reputation is most, that I know, and I think about poets whose reputation is most out of sync with their achievement. The list I come back to again and again would be, um, in the 20th century in particular, 20th century in particular, uh, Dorothy Parker, whose light verse is absolutely fantastic and incredibly funny, even though she was a Stalinist, we'll have to forgive her. Uh, it, I mean, it's just, the stuff is just incredibly witty. I there, uh, and she really sort of turned the tradition of epigram, which had been up till then largely male, uh, on its head and did an incredible job. And the other one then, along with her, and both of them very anti-modernist in their technique, if not their sen- They're modern in their sensibility, but anti-modernist in their technique. Uh, and that would be Edna St. Vincent Millay, who I think is absolutely splendid. Sorry? Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm getting at. Completely under uh, under-recognized. Uh, another one um, then would be Robinson Jeffers, whose time will come again, but who is still, you know, persona non grata in the Academy um, for a number of interesting and complicated reasons, although he's popular with readers. Uh, and then another one would be a woman who I talked about today in my class from Colorado, who I encourage everybody to read, whose name was Belle Turnbull, who lived from 1881 to 1970. Um, and I, if I can just talk about her for a minute, this woman is incredible. Uh, she is one of the greatest poets ever to come out of Colorado. You know, in the generation before, you have Alfred Kastner King and Eugene Field and these sort of vernacular four-square mining ballads that are fun to read. And then you, and then you have her. She, she's born in Clinton, New York in 1881. Her parents, uh, which is where Hamilton College is, moves here at the age of nine, goes east to Swarthmore College, teaches college for a few years, returns to Colorado Springs, becomes the chair of the English department at at, um, Colorado Springs High School, never married, never had children, was presumably gay because she had a female companion for her entire life, retires in 1935, moves up to Frisco, and then they move up to Breckenridge. In 1937, and they live in a cabin with a cat, you know? And Helen Rich, her, her companion is, I mean, 1937 in Breckenridge. I, I don't even know if they had running water. I mean, the mining industry is in decline. The ski industry hasn't started. And she wrote three books. One is a novel called The Other Side of the Mountain and two volumes of poetry. One of them is a book-length volume of poetry called Gold Boat, published by Houghton Mifflin in 1940. The second is a collection of lyrics called The Ten Mile Range, published by a tiny little press out in the Midwest whose name escapes me, in 1957, when she's already 76 years old. Um, And these poems she'd been publishing throughout her career, including in Poetry Magazine, where in 1940 she won the Harriet Monroe Memorial Prize. Another winner that year was Dylan Thomas, you know, for uh, When My Five in Country Senses See. And this is a, a collection of utterly perfect Petrarchan stanza, uh, sonnets um, call, which are called uh, 
of her, I forget the title, and then Mr. Probus. Mr. Probus being her alter ego, who is a miner. And these poems, this woman knew her mining absolutely cold. Yeah, why is that funny? Mr. Probus, Probus, the truth. And, and these poems, I don't know, they're out in the car, I could read one for you. They are unbelievably good. They belong in the Norton Anthology of English Literature. She's as good as, a, she sort of seems in some ways similar to Elizabeth Bishop and, uh, um, uh, 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 what's her name? Marion Moore, yes. I had Harriet Monroe, Mar- Marion Moore. I was going Marilyn Monroe. I went, no, that's not right. It's a, uh, Mar- Marion Moore. And she's, she's absolutely spectacular. She's completely forgotten now. Her papers are in the Denver Public Library. I've seen them, and I went down and I saw them. There were letters of admiration from James Merrill, May Sarton, Witter Binner. Uh, there was a rave review in the New York Times of the 10 Mile Range by, um, I'm blocking on his name, uh, uh, Meredith, William Meredith. Interestingly, all overtly gay poets who lived publicly with their lovers. So there's this element there. Although she doesn't write about that subject at all. This woman's a great poet. And she's completely forgotten. And I'm writing an essay about her, obviously. I'm fascinated with her. She's, uh, she knew her mining. She understood money, greed, the human heart. And her use of language is incredible. That's my short list, those four. Although there are others, of course. It's a great question. It's very interesting. Oh, no, there's, there's a little essay because some of her work has been republished by some people up in Breckenridge, and somebody did some very good research. And that's where I get a number of those facts from. I can't remember the name of the guy who did it. Um, it's 100 pages of poetry, and you read it, and it just blows your head off. Uh, she's spectacular. Uh, really great. Aren't you all Who do you all think is overrated? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's a dangerous question. I know. I have to ask. Didn't they do that in Manhattan? You know, Woody Allen's movie? Exactly. Overrated. This is going to sound, this is going to sound uh, bad because they're way better poets than I am. Um, but the Dickman brothers. If you don't, uh, Michael and Matthew Dickman, I, I think they're really talented, both in their own way. But the name, I just, I just would say their their talent for the volume of adoration that is happening for them right now is is out of whack. There's a lot of better poets out there, I think, um, and that's kind of picking on two young poets, and I shouldn't do that because I, I mean how. They've had so much success so early, but I, but I almost think that they, I hope that they keep it up, but I almost feel like they might not be able to, given the, given the saw, adoration. They saw pre-crime in the movie, <laughs> I've already reported, right. two of the pre-crime people that know they play these people, so they've already seen the future. That's true, that's true. Um, there is no stopping them now. They know it. It's true. It's true. Look it up on Yeah. These two poets were those. Yeah, they were. No. Yes. So they, they know what happens. As a matter of fact, there might be a stormtroopers outside right now for me talking smack about them. They're already, it's, it's all already coming.
I know who you're going to say. What am I going to say? Uh, well, you know, I'm actually, uh, it's very tempting, but I'm not going to answer the question directly. I'm going to say something larger, which is that we live, we live in a culture of inflation when it comes to this. You know, and so much of poetry is now built around um, prizes and awards. Uh, and that's because it's the only way that presses can subsidize publication. So they have to raise capital up front. So they have to create an award in order to uh, raise money to publish the book because otherwise um, they won't be able to publish the book. So while the intention is good and that they want to publish books, this culture of awards and of evaluation in this way, because a lot of these reputations occur for poets who simply couldn't make a living if they had to sell books. Nobody's making a living by selling the books except for, what, 20 people maybe? Derek Walcott, Seamus Heaney, John Ashbury, W.S. Merwin. Billy Collins, uh, uh, um, a few others. Yeah, I mean, there are probably 20, maybe. And, and uh, so, you know, the bottom line is that this culture of status is actually a function of the economic condition which underwrites it, which is necessary for the small presses to be able to publish the books. So uh, my response would be to say that um, what we should perhaps think about is is that culture. And, and it's, so it's a different kind of a question because the question of, of who's undervalued is to suggest, again, we're talking about poets who aren't alive so much, at least I was, and the only thing I'm saying is not give them a prize, but go read them because they're great. Because it, if you go through college, you're unlikely to get, or grad school for that matter, you're not likely to get as much exposure to these poets as you might, and they deserve that attention because they're so good. Uh, but the overvaluation, and it's a very reasonable question, but again, I turn it back on the culture itself, is a function of the economic condition in which these poets um, are overvalued, which is a, a culture where there has to be a necessary subsidy to, to enable the publication. So I would say um, what we need to do is examine the means of production. You know, I mean, and, and I'm, I'm really serious about it, actually, in this case. Um, it may sound quaint, but the... the uh, the real issue is that what these, unfortunately, what these contests and prizes and competitions do is they pit readers against each other. Because, of course, you've then paid for your free book, and you get it in the mail, and you go, what is this shit? I should have won that. <laughs> this, who, is this, who is this loser? And you read one poem, and you go, oh, I knew it. What, what a pile of crap. Well, that's not exactly the best way to build an audience for poetry, uh, even though it's a necessary economic model or it appears to be, and I believe there are other solutions to that, but if it, my response would be to say, we need to try to find ways to build audience and do what we can to create publication opportunities that don't rely on a mechanism of such rigid um, status building so that we can fo- get back to focusing on readers because in order to have great uh, poets, you, one must, how does he say it? We must have great audiences too. In order, I think Whitman says, in order to have great artists, we must have great audiences, too. And uh, so that's uh, a roundabout response, but it's a great question. So, I, uh, Honestly, I, I mean, I think whatever I, I'll say is just going to be kind of an embellishment of David's remarks, which is that we do have a literary culture that tends to, on the one hand, uh, overrate what's trivial and underrate what's actually sustainable. Um, if you look at the current economic model of, say, first book prizes, you have uh, a lot of prizes where um, you have someone um, who, who gets a book and, and wins a prize, and then you have a press 
who publishes that first book but will not make any future commitment to their work. And that seems to be to be the worst kind of hypocrisy. Um, for it's not hypocrisy. They can't afford to do it. Well, so they can't do it. But why do it in the first place? I mean, isn't it, if they're doing it in the first place and they know they can't actually sustain a relationship with the writer, isn't that hypocritical? Oh. Isn't isn't it saying to the audience, you know, here's a great author you should read. We're never going to publish anything by this person again. I think that's uh, I think that's you know I think it's disrespectful of the contract that a publisher has with an audience, which is that we we're going to present good work to you and sustain good work. It's a it's a it's an economic problem. Having been a publisher, although I didn't run a prize and I never I never will. The uh, <laughs> The, um, the issue there is that they would literally wind up in debtor's prison because they simply can't afford to do it. And that's the, that's the problem. I think that by and large that's true. Like probably 60, 70 percent of the cases that's true. But there's there are a good 30 percent of the cases where I think that's not true. If you look at a press like Alice James has a lot of prizes and they often don't make multiple book commitments, but they're clearly capable of publishing wow. subsequent titles. And I, that's just one example. But the, the thing I want to say to you, David, is that it's one thing to say that this economic model is making a hole in the discipline of reading and making a hole in the community of readers. But on the other hand, you know, the original question asked you for a judgment. And this has typically been the counterweight to, to the publishing industry, book reviewing, mm-hmm. criticism, yeah. scholarship, those sorts of things. And so I feel like in some ways if we're in a situation where I think a, a good question, if a delicate question is, is asked, and the answer is the publishing model is killing publish, publishing in some way, um, maybe it's already lost. I mean, maybe the response suggests that it really isn't. Oh, I don't think so. I think there are other models. And in fact, um, I mean, um, I think there are other models that promote reading. And I think there is a lot of reading going on. It's just that that particular model is a, it's a kind of a desperation tactic often. Um, I consult with a number of presses. And you're absolutely right. There are some, obviously, you know, there are other models for subsidizing poetry. And some poetry does make money. You know, uh, FSG, I think, is doing okay. And there are others. You know, Norton, obviously, but those are often floating subsidized upon much broader production basis. So their margins, they can afford to lose it on a small run of, of poetry books and they can commit to it as big publishers always have in the past as they had a, a commitment to doing so. I don't think it's lost at all. I think uh, what we have to do is be very creative about appropriate models for trying to grow the audience. It's there and the quality of the writing is there too. I guess what I'm simply getting at is that we have to be conscious and try to think about models for promoting the production and reading and teaching and criticism of good poetry that perhaps come up that come up with alternatives and i'm involved in some of those but i don't want to take up too much time talking about them there are 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 other ways to do it second point i completely agree with you about the importance of good book reviews we can't have book reviews where everyone is tiptoeing around you know you don't want to be gratuitously cruel like like tracy and and what's his name who reviews for uh yeah logan who's famous for this of course although he makes good points but he's gratuitously nasty in order to just score points the uh but we do need tough-minded, thoughtful, nuanced, intelligent reviews and i'd say if anybody wants to get involved in the poetry world and i tell this to all my students as well you want to get involved, you want to participate and be part of the conversation, write good book reviews, in addition to your own poems, and publish them. 
to further the conversation. I could agree, could not possibly agree more. So that we develop a culture that that's one way to develop a culture of evaluation that isn't simply based on prizes, where you actually have reading and criticism and conversation going on, and we have to hold that up as much as we can. And uh, I'd, I'd be glad to talk about other models for small press work, but that's another conversation. You know, David, your, your response just made me actually think of, I, I think, a, a, an answer that I can live with to your question. You say, what is, who are the overrated poets? And, no, I think another way of thinking of this is um, something I said before about reading outside of your experience and reading outside of your nationality, who are overrated. American poets are overrated, <laughs> um, which is that I don't think we make enough of a habit of reading outside of our nationalities and our experiences when you read, even if it's in translation, yes, the, the language is not perfect, the sense is not always perfect. Um, I think, uh, shoot, what is it, Wayne Miller once described reading poetry in translation as like watching a film with the sound turned down. Um, um, but it's a way to get into another idiom, another experience, another culture that is entirely outside of your own. And I think, and I, and I say this, I don't say this to point the finger, I say this because I wish I had made a practice of reading non-American poets earlier in my writing life than I had. And I don't think we make enough of a practice of reading poetry in translation as we should. And that's one of the commitments that I have as a book reviewer is when I write reviews, I try to write reviews of poets in translation because that is the way that they get a wider readership is through American readers. Um, that is actually a mark of success for a lot of foreign writers is when they get an American readership and an English translation. So so there's, a, there's my answer to your question. <laughs> the, the, uh, the three most overrated poets in America are John Ashbery, <laughs> John, John Ashbery and John Ashbery. This is this is the danger of this. Uh, I think John Ashbery is a gifted guy. I love his art criticism. He's civil and intelligent and charming and, and he's very serious and committed has a lot of integrity first of all um, he, he publishes everything he writes as far as I can tell and I think it's too much secondly I think uh, I think the poetry is um, it's, it, it's a late echo of modernism and, and his language is so uh, intentionally flattened that it becomes uh, it becomes so flat that I just I don't find it interesting uh, as verse uh, let alone as poetry. Thirdly, you know the intentional obfuscation, um, the uh, the the endless attack on the sublime on emotions. It's sort of like the endless argument that the novel is dead and it's impossible to represent character or uh, after in the wake of certain kinds of developments and the dislocations of modern life. Blah blah blah. Fallacy of imitative form. I find it. I find it dull. Um, I, I actually think feelings still exist and. Um, and that it's possible to, to write a coherent narrative like B.H. Fairchild. Um, and I, I just, frankly, I, I, I realize that he's not trying to do what I'm saying I'm interested in, but, and I understand the appeals to, to the sophistication of the work, and I can see the relationship to Stevens and Swinburne and so on and so forth. I, it, I just find it dull. And... Um, I think there are other poets of his generation, which is a very great generation, which included Anthony Hecht and W.S. Merwin and Galway Cannell and Adrian Rich and, uh, for that matter, Bob Dylan's just a, really a decade later. 
Um, I'd say one of the great answers to John Ashbery would be the vitality of the work of someone like Bob Dylan, whether or not you call it poetry, it's verbal art, or of W.S. Merwin, for that matter, um, who I think is the only American poet um, probably who would be a reasonable nominee for the Nobel Prize in Literature. Um, so uh, that's a brief answer, but uh, I realize them fighting words. But but we, but furthermore, we have dinner, and outside the window is opened to her singing. Therefore, why am I here? <laughs> Should we end on that? <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.